come this Lord's Day to continue our study in the subject of the God of all comforts. God has promised us another comforter, the Holy Ghost, who will dwell within all the Lord's people. The comforter gives us life and sustains that life on account of the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. The comforter will teach us all things and bring to remembrance the things that Christ said. The Comforter will, as it were, take His place when Christ ascends to glory and continue to teach and to bring to mind the things that Jesus had told them during His ministry. Christ warned us that the world will hate us because it hated Him first. The world hated Christ because He told them of their sin. It was His speaking the truth that brought out their hatred of Him. Christ's gospel preaching unmasked their hatred. The world hates Christ, and Christ made it clear the world hates the Father also and the Father's loved ones. Christ then introduces the answer to the world's derision and hatred and violence against the Lord's people. It is the Comforter. The Comforter is the Spirit of Truth who answers powerfully against the lies of this wicked world. Christ makes it clear that the Comforter testifies to the truth about Christ. He refutes the slanders against Jesus by the world. But far better, the Comforter testifies to Christ's people the glorious things about our Savior. Christ contrasts the hatred and slander and persecution of His people by the wicked with the comfort given to us by the Comforter. Christ puts great weight upon this work of the Holy Ghost for us and for the cause of Christ in us. But Christ states that His apostles would also testify of Him because they were with Him and had seen and heard Him. It is clear that Christ deems the dual testimony of the Comforter and of the apostles in the Scriptures as fully sufficient to refute the lies, the slanders, the persecutions by wicked men, and the evil conduct of those who oppose Christ and hate God. In this life and in these times, there is to be no violence or revenge by the saints against wicked men who attack all that is God's. Rather, there is to be spirit-led testifying to the truth by the Lord's people, by the Word of God, and by the comfort of the Comforter to our hearts. Psalm 35 contains a haunting recitation of the persecution of Christ and of the reaction of His people to His cause. In fact, Christ was cruelly beaten and stripped naked and oppressed with a crown of thorns. He was tortured, mutilated, pierced, and crucified. But before He died, He was mocked and taunted by wicked men who traduced His character, derided His protestations of obedience to God and God's love for Him. The psalmist laments the lies told, the rewarding of evil for Christ's good deeds, the rejoicing of Christ's death, Christ cries out that God would rescue him. Christ foretold the rejoicing of the wicked against him and the gloating that took place at the foot of the cross. Christ called out for judgment to awake against his persecutors and that they would be ashamed after they had magnified themselves against him. Indeed, God has already vindicated our Lord Jesus. God raised his son up the third day from the grave and exalted him to the highest in heaven and gave Him all power and authority over the entire world. Most importantly, God has granted to Christ the complete salvation of all His beloved people for whom Christ died. 
to all the calumny and lies and brutalities Christ endured and that His people endure. It is the reproof of the Holy Ghost and the testifying of the Comforter to the Lord's people and the testimony of His witnesses and His people before the world. It is all these replies that the Lord Jesus deems sufficient in this life to answer and overcome all the persecution. Therefore, it is the Lord's people who shout for joy and are glad because they favor Christ's cause. They cry out, Let the Lord be magnified, who has pleasure in the prosperity of His servant Jesus. We can see that our Lord Jesus has prospered mightily in His great work of redemption. That work is sealed unto us by the Comforter, who continually speaks of Christ to us and regales us with the truth about Jesus and the Father's exceeding love for us. At the Lord's table, we preach the Lord's death for us. We testify of what Jesus did to save us at Calvary. This is wrought in us by the testimony of the Comforter in our hearts. No matter what the wicked world says about Christ, we say, let the Lord be magnified. Now, Jesus continues in John 16, elaborating on the purpose and work of the Comforter. Already He has warned them that they will be persecuted, they will be hated because the world hated Him, because He exposed their sin, because He was to bring in a better righteousness than their filthy rags, which so many of them were resting upon. In John 16, beginning at verse 1, Christ says this, These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. That means not be tempted into sin, not be brought up suddenly by something that they didn't anticipate, but have advance notice, if you will. They should not turn away from Christ because all this would take place. He's promised them everlasting life. He's promised them He'll come back to receive them unto Himself. He's promised them salvation through His sacrifice. But He's telling them this so they would not be offended They would not be startled. They would not be stampeded into doing anything foolish or sinful. And he says this, They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh when whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. Think about how radical that must have sounded to them. Because remember, they were anticipating Christ was going to set up His kingdom and He was going to run out of town all the wicked folk and the, the haters of God and so forth. And it was going to be a new utopia. And so it will be one day that Christ makes it clear this is not the time when that would take place. These things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. They're aliens to God. They're aliens to Christ. How many people falsely say that people who defy God and engage in all kind of wickedness are nevertheless somehow worshiping the same God and they're just confused? No, Christ says they have not known the Father nor me. In another place, He said they hated both me and the Father. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. Now here is an assertion of Christ's deity, you see. God knows the future. And Jesus is laying down the mark that I'm telling you this now, so when it happens, you'll remember that I told you that it would happen, and you'll believe. But then it says, 
These things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. While the Lord Jesus was with His people, all that time during His ministry, He didn't need to warn them of the coming persecution. It's a sense in which Christ was a shield to His disciples. You remember in the garden He told, He recited to His Father that you have allowed me to keep all of the people that you've given me. And you remember He told the guards that came to arrest Him, if it's me you seek, let these go their way. So even to the last, you see, Christ was a shield to His people in His mighty personality and ministry. And because He is the Son of God, He was in a position to protect His people from opposition. The main reason was because the opposition was chiefly against Him, not His people. There was some lashing out against His people, His disciples. But Christ could not be taken to the grave before it was time. No man could take his life from him. You remember all the times in the Gospels where it says that they tried to kill him, they tried to throw him over a cliff, they tried this and they tried that, but they were unable to because his time had not yet come. So as long as Christ was in that mode of ministry, you see, his people were protected also. But then he said that these things, therefore, I did not say unto you at the beginning because I was with you. But now you see He's fixing to leave. He's going to leave by a bloody death on the cross. We should read all these texts realizing that Christ going away, Christ not being with them anymore, it's not just about Him ascending into glory. It's about the whole end of His ministry where He is taken and crucified unjustly and slain and buried and then rises from the grave and then ascends to His Father in glory. This is what it means to say that all these things would befall Him. But now I go my way to Him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. They were brokenhearted over the prospect of losing Christ in His physical presence in their midst because of their assumption about the kingdom and about the rule and about uh, the authority of Christ. They didn't understand at all that what they needed was to be saved from their sins and that Christ could only accomplish that by the sacrifice He was going to make. But they're about to understand it in a couple of weeks maybe when it dawns upon them that Christ fulfilled all the Scripture about a coming Messiah who would save His people from their sin and He would do so by dying in their place at the cross. Because He has said these things, that He's going away by death, by ascension, what have you, sorrow has filled their hearts. I wonder if you've ever noticed how privileged a position we live in that we do not have to confront that sorrow that they had to confront. Because the sorrow is past and now the joy has come. And so we know why Christ suffered on the cross. And we know that He obtained our eternal redemption. And we know He was vindicated at the resurrection and He's seated in heaven making intercession for us. So therefore we don't have to face this sorrow of being halfway through the process of our redemption and having such weak faith as to not fully trust that what Christ had been promising to them, He would fulfill. How can He fulfill 
any of that if he's not here anymore? How can we be saved by a dead Savior? And so the sorrow was understandable, although it was brought about, no doubt, by a weakness in their faith. Now, having laid that groundwork, he didn't say these things to them earlier because he was with the disciples. They were under the protection of the mighty physical presence of Christ. His reality in front of them comforted them. See, that's why he calls the Holy Ghost another comforter. That's to come and stand in the place of his own comfort that he gave his people when he was here in the flesh with them. Now notice that in that capacity, Christ was not a comforter, was he, to the people on the other side of the world or to God-fearing people who awaited the Messiah but didn't interact with him. You see, his comfort was limited by the physicality of his incarnation. That's not to say that Christ as the Son of God is not omnipresent because He is, but that's in His deity. In His humanity, He's localized in one place. That's the problem with the Mass. Christ is literally, physically, at the right hand of God in glory. Therefore, He can't be in the bread and the wine. Not physically. Not literally. He does not appear in 10,000 Catholic cathedrals on the Lord's Day, all at the same time, just because some priest says the hocus-pocus and says that it's so. No, He's in heaven. He's in glory. The Lord's table is a symbol of remembrance to what was real to these disciples when Christ was with them in His physical presence. And so He comforted His disciples while He was here. No matter what the world said, they had the substantial physical presence of Jesus with them, and to them that made everything right, didn't it? But when Jesus ascends to glory, when Jesus dies on the cross, a different condition will prevail amongst the Lord's people. They will lose the comfort that they got from Jesus there with them in tangible, physical, and visible presence. They will lose their conception of the safety and stability of a physical kingdom. And what they receive, of course, far eclipses what they will lose. So what they will lose is a combination of the temporary manifestation of Christ in His bodily form before their eyes and the false view that they held about what the Lord Jesus was going to do for them And they're putting of the emphasis all on the wrong place, you see. But what they receive in exchange for those things when Christ leaves them by dying, by rising again, by ascension into glory, what they receive is salvation by the death of Christ and a perfect priest before God and peace with God and everlasting life. Well, now those are greatly to be exchanged for what they were trying to hold on to, what their hearts had convinced them was their main joy. The joy and the happiness and the benefit that would come from Christ leaving them by the means we have described was far better than what they had in His presence in the promised land in those days. 
But Christ promises them something that He knows is better than His physical presence with them. Think of this. This is what Jesus is saying. and we, We need to face it head on. That He's saying that it's better for them that He not be physically present with them. That He go away from them. That He die. That He rise. That He ascend into glory to be their high priest. It's it's better concretely for them that this should happen. That's what He's saying to them. He knows that it's better than His physical presence with them at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. So regardless of how sad you are and how frustrated you are, even how frantic you are, regardless of all that, He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send Him unto you. So here is the great exchange that Christ is advocating and promising and telling them is better than being in His presence in this world before He dies and before He leaves to return to His Father. That what He offers them in the Comforter is better than being the physical presence of Christ. So we have to put ourselves in their shoes. If we had lived at that time, we would have thought, wouldn't we, just like they did, that nothing could be better than being in the presence of Christ. They gave up everything to follow Him, didn't they? They walked away from their businesses. They walked away from their families in many cases. And they were in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And you know, we... We marvel at how glorious it will be one day when we will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Just as Job marveled that one day he would see his Redeemer. And one day too they shall be in the presence of Christ. In spirit they already are in glory. But in spite of all of those truths, Jesus is saying to them and to us that it's better now that you have the Comforter than that you have me in your physical presence. Well, that's a tall order, isn't it? That's something that we wouldn't believe if Jesus hadn't told it to us. A lot of people probably still wouldn't believe it. You see, when Jesus ascends to glory, they will lose that comfort that they had in His presence, but they will gain far more, won't they? You remember in John 7, we pointed out a few Lord's days ago, that Jesus said, I will give you rivers of living water that will flow from your heart. And John explains, he says he means by that life by the Spirit. For the Spirit had not yet come. So John is explaining that the Holy Ghost will give to the Lord's people by His indwelling, fountains of life that will flow forth from them, living water to quench their thirst and to give them life forever. But that this couldn't happen until after the Lord Jesus had left and the Holy Ghost had been sent. Then rivers of living water would flow from them. That would be far better for them, you see. Christ is saying that. It would be far better for you to receive rivers of living water, spiritual life by the Holy Spirit indwelling you 
rather than just to walk around in this dusty place in my presence and following my lead, it's better that you be given life everlasting than that we just focus on some temporal, physical kingdom desire that you might have in this life. Christ is anticipating also a host of believers the world over and His physical incarnate body, He could not be with them all at the same time. Therefore, the Holy Ghost being in the hearts of all of His people, no matter where they're located on the face of the earth, is better because the Holy Ghost can perform the same good things for the Lord's people, whether Jesus be physically present or absent from them at a given time. The Holy Spirit can work life. The Holy Spirit can comfort. The Holy Spirit can provide joy and protection. So the Comforter does not have that real physical limitation. He's the Spirit of God. indwells us completely and everywhere. So it is expedient that Christ die and ascend to glory. So that the Comforter can dwell within all of the Lord's people. The Comforter cannot comfort us except the Son first die for us. There's the catch. This is why Christ says, part of why Christ says, that the Comforter cannot come until I go away. The Comforter would not be able to comfort anybody without the death of Christ being accomplished. Better that Christ dies for us so that the Comforter may come and comfort us by Christ's work at Calvary. This is what Jesus is trying to convey to these people. That the Comforter will not be activated. He will not be able to carry out the ministry that Christ has outlined for them till Christ goes away, till He dies, till He rises again, till He ascends to glory. You see, the work of Christ on the cross and in glory as our high priest is better far than Him staying on earth and teaching and doing miracles and never dying to save us. So here is the conundrum, if you will. That they could be happy in the presence of the physical Christ, but in the end they would be miserable. They would be doomed if Christ had not gone away had not gone to the cross, had not risen, had not ascended into glory to perform His high priestly duty for us, they would be exchanging a temporal joy and happiness for an eternal, the eternal promise of glory and everlasting life through the death of the Lord Jesus. The Comforter would have no comforting work to do before the sacrifice, would He? before it was perfected. He would not be able to convey to us peace and no sense of forgiveness, no spirit of adoption. None of those things could take place save for Christ completing His work on Calvary's tree. And only then would it be profitable for us that the Comforter be sent. Then He has a great comfort which we've been talking about for Several weeks now. A great comfort for the Lord's people. The comfort that the Comforter gives to us is all about what Christ did in His dying 
to save us. Note well, almost all of the hatred and persecution that the believers suffer is on account of the death of Christ. So you see that there is this tension there. We receive hatred and contempt and persecution from wicked men because Christ died. But we receive salvation and forgiveness of sin and peace with God and everlasting life because Christ died. So there is a tension there that if Christ had not come and had not preached the gospel and had not died on the cross for His people, then probably what would have happened is there would be nobody to trust in Him and His people would just wither away like so many other charismatic leaders who whip up a big crowd to follow them and then they get caught in some sin or they fall into temptation or they just get old and die. And people go to their funeral and say, His memory will live forever in our hearts. But that's a lie. It slowly fades. Slowly goes away. And then there's no reason to persecute His followers because they didn't got nobody to follow anymore. And His enemies had the last word, didn't they? They got what they wanted. And so you see that the persecution the Lord's people suffer is precisely because Christ was victorious in dying and in rising again and in ascending into glory and in sending us the Comforter. That's the reason that they hate Him so and that the hatred will never stop until the Lord Jesus comes back and puts a stop to it. So we would have no hope just like the world has no hope had Christ not left them by way of the cross, by way of ascension, by way of being seated at the right hand of God. And therefore, the Comforter would not have been able to come. We would just be like all the other men in this world, miserable and lost and doomed. But because of Christ's death, the world keeps on hating Him and His people. And we are saved and we are blessed. We are promised everlasting life. And Christ is explaining at least a part of this Reality to His people. And so the crucial working of the Comforter to us can then become apparent at the victory and ascension of the Lord Jesus. Now there is peace to work in the hearts of the Lord's people. Now there is confidence to work in our hearts. Now there is the promise of Christ's sacrifice and what He's accomplished to work in our hearts. Now there is the work of the Comforter to convey to us, to call to mind to us all the beautiful, glorious things about our precious Redeemer. And so, while the world continues to hate Christ, hate God, and hate His people, we have the Comforter to underline the glories of Christ, the beauties of Christ, and the work of Christ. And we said this in a similar way last Lord's Day, didn't we? that Christ considers the Comforter coming and the Word of God recorded for us and preached. He considers those to be adequate replies, answers, rebuttals to all of the hatred and all the persecution that this world can put upon us. It reminded me of the words to a song by Horatius Bonner that we used to sing, but it's difficult to sing. The cross, it standeth fast, defying every blast. 
The winds of hell have blown. The world its hate hath shown. Yet it is not overthrown. Hallelujah for the cross. It is the old cross still. Its triumph let us tell. The grace of God here shown through Christ the blessed Son who did for sin atone. Hallelujah for the cross. Twas here the debt was paid. Our sins on Jesus laid. So round the cross we sing of Christ our offering, of Christ our living King. Hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It shall never suffer loss. So there the songwriter contrasts, you see, the hatred of the lost world for the cross of Christ and the glory of what Christ accomplished and the rejoicing of the Lord's people that thus it is, that it should be so. And the Comforter plays a key part in taking the place of Christ as a Comforter in this world and having much more comfort to give because now the work is done. Now everlasting righteousness has been brought in by Christ. Now justification by the blood of Jesus has been applied to the hearts of all of His people. And it is applied by the Comforter for our profit and encouragement. So as we come to the Lord's table, we think of how this is just another example of how the Comforter works in our hearts. He is using this remembrance which Christ authorized to bring us once again back to the basis of our comfort, the sole basis of our comfort that Jesus died for our sins and that therefore we have been saved for all eternity. Praise God. Well, let's give thanks for the bread first that pictures the body of Christ that was broken for us. So God our Father, we come to You in the name of Your Son. We give You praise that You didn't withhold Him, but You delivered Him up for us. You made Him an offering for sin. You made Him Your Lamb to be slain for the sake of His people, that Your wrath might fall upon Him and we might be spared. And it did fall upon Him, and we who've trusted in Jesus are spared all the wrath and all the judgment that we so truly deserved. And we thank You that the Comforter has been sent to provoke in us, to stir up in us, in our hearts, things concerning Christ and the glory of what He has done for us and what He is doing for us. And we thank You He left us this bread to picture the body that was broken for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat, this is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus made for the forgiveness of our sins. And the Scriptures tell us after they had supped that the Lord Jesus took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing 
Charles Spurgeon's great communion hymn amidst us our beloved stands and bids us view his pierced hands, points to the wounded feet and side, bless emblems of the crucified. Number 144.